What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. It's been a busy week down here in Miami. The World Baseball Classic was in full swing. I was actually able to go to two of the games, the semifinal and the final, which was awesome, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, March Madness is in full swing, and it now even looks like Lamar Jackson might be having his business partner try to negotiate with NFL teams. So more on all of that, it's been a busy week in sports business. I want to talk about a few different topics today, including the World Baseball Classic, but more importantly, Shohei Otani and what his business looks like and how much he might be getting on his next contract. I also want to talk about ESPN. They have a round of layoffs coming. I want to talk about who might be impacted, why they're doing it, what we can tell from history. And then thirdly, I want to talk about the XFL. We haven't talked about the XFL much, but it's obviously the spring football league in America. It's back in business, back from the dead for the third time now. And we have some viewership numbers that I want to talk about. So we'll get to all of that. The one thing that I do want to ask out of all of you is to obviously listen, share, subscribe to the show, et cetera, but also DM me on Twitter, any questions you have about sports business world, anything of that nature. I want to start a mailbag section of this podcast where I take questions weekly or biweekly. We'll figure all of that out, but I want to interact with you guys a little bit more. And I got a few questions last time when I gave my email out at the end of the podcast, but shoot me a DM on Twitter. You can email me. My email is jmpompliano at gmail.com. And I want to take in some questions. I'll answer them on the following podcast and we can just go back and forth and talk through some of this stuff. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. All right, let's talk about the World Baseball Classic. Like I said before in the intro, I was able to go to two games here in Miami. I live in Miami. The games are at Lone Depot Park, which is where the Miami Marlins play. I tweeted out a couple videos. So if you want to see what the action looked like, go there, check them out. But my main point was that this was nothing like baseball in Miami typically is. So for those that don't know, the Miami Marlins draw no fans. I moved here a few years ago. I've probably been to three, four, maybe five games since I moved here just as a baseball fan. I don't really have a connection to the Marlins. I don't like the Marlins per se, but when other teams come to town, the Yankees, Padres came, I went and watched them. Basically, other teams that have good players, I go and watch. Tickets are generally pretty cheap. You can get in for $10, $15 if you want with the cheapest ticket. The lower bowl has people in it, but the second level has no one in it, and certainly the third level has no one in it. You can basically sit wherever you want, but what I typically do is I pay $40, $50 and I sit behind home plate, 15 rows up. So it's it's a great seat, but the atmosphere is is dead. No one really cares. It's mostly away fans, et cetera. So baseball is pretty much dead here in Miami for at least the last few years. And from what I've heard from other people, at least a decade now. So it's been fun as hell seeing all these fans come in here, the passion, the excitement, the energy in Miami. It's just been amazing. And it's all credit to Major League Baseball and the Players Association, who collectively started the World Baseball Classic nearly two decades ago, almost, I guess, 15 years ago. So we've talked about this before. I think most people understand what the World Baseball Classic is. But let's run through some of the numbers, because I saw online there was a narrative maybe a week or two ago, and we've talked about this, that the World Baseball Classic was stupid, players were getting hurt, it was unnecessary, it wasn't good for the game, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think we put that to bed. I think most people realize that's dumb, that's irrational, this is important, baseball has been losing popularity, this is injecting it back into the game, it's global, people are watching, it's during spring training, so when there's not necessarily good games anyways, playoff atmosphere, et cetera. So I think most people understand that. 
But now what I've been seeing is people online are saying, it's just a Twitter thing. Only people on Twitter care. The viewership numbers aren't that great. So right before I started recording this podcast, I went and I jotted down just four or five, maybe six of my favorite stats from the World Baseball Classic. So I'm going to read a few of them to you here. There were 1.3 million people that attended World Baseball Classic games. That's a record. And the previous record from 2017 was broken during pool play. So after pool play, everything was a cherry on top. That was a record from pool play onward. 1.3 million people went through the turnstiles at World Baseball Classic Games, a record. The tournament made 90 to $100 million. I got this from John Wall Street, who writes a great newsletter. He broke it down with an executive from Major League Baseball. The tournament made 90 to $100 million in revenue, and it's already profitable for Major League Baseball and the Players Association. Fox is paying for the broadcasting rights for the first time ever now. They used to broadcast it for free. Obviously, the skill level was up. I, I think there was seven Major League Baseball MVPs. There was two reigning MVPs from the Japanese League. There was Otani, et cetera. But there were 5.2 million viewers on FS1 for the final game. And this is important for a number of reasons. But most importantly, the game wasn't on Fox's main network feed. And that's important because that's in more households. That's the one everyone watches. You don't need the package and everything. It's, it's a broadcast cable network channel. The game was on FS1 which is a secondary channel, which I'm assuming Fox is trying to stop churn and, and kind of stop the bleeding on that a little bit. So they put some more important events. But 5.2 million viewers is pretty damn solid for FS1. So solid that in total, I think the World Baseball Classic averaged 6.5 million was the peak. The average was 5.2. And the 5.2 made it the most watched baseball game out of the regular season. So not counting playoffs, but if you just looked at Major League Baseball's regular season, and if you excluded the Field of Dreams game in 2021, which was a spectacle and MLB put a bunch of promotion into it and spent millions and millions of dollars promoting that, building the site, et cetera. If you take that out and only include regular season, it would have been the most watched Major League Baseball regular season game since 2011. So more than a decade, that's how important the World Baseball Classic was. And if you think it was just Americans, you're wrong. So I have a few numbers here from Twitter specifically that just show some of the reach. Nine of Major League Baseball's top 10 most liked tweets of all time came from the 2023 World Baseball Classic. So if you looked at all the tweets they've ever done in the history of the account, nine out of the top 10, the first nine, not the 10th, but the first nine are all from the World Baseball Classic. Shohei Otani's strikeout to win the World Baseball Classic is their most liked tweet ever with 200,000 likes. Take a guess on what's number two. Number two is the Astros 2022 World Series congratulations post. That had 30,000 likes. So Shohei Itani's strikeout in the World Baseball Classic got 200,000 likes. And the Astros congratulations post, which was previously before this tournament, their most liked post ever on, in, on Twitter, got 30,000. That's a 170,000 like difference. Furthermore, Fox's tweet, so that was MLB's Twitter account. This is now Fox's. Fox's tweet about Japan's World Baseball Classic Championship has 275,000 likes in just 36 hours. Their previous record was just 20,000 likes, and their top 35 most liked tweets have now all come in the last two weeks from the World Baseball Classic. That's in addition to them adding 100,000 followers. I mean, that's just insane. Literally, Fox's top 35 most liked tweets ever have all come in the last two weeks. This is a global tournament. People care about it outside of the United States. We had huge numbers in the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, other countries, especially Japan. There's a number out right now. It's unconfirmed at this point, 
but a few different people have reported on it that 97.4% of all TVs that are active, right? So this isn't, you don't take every single TV that's in Japan. The way this works is the TVs that are active during this time period, the share was 97.4% of all TVs in Japan were tuned in to watch Shohei Otani strike out Mike Trout to end the World Baseball Classic. That's 97.4%. I mean, that is literally insane. So the numbers were just unbelievable. Obviously, the star of the tournament was Shohei Hodani, who came over from Japan, now plays for the LA Angels, along with Mike Trout. They ended the game facing off against each other. Otani obviously won that matchup, but Otani had an incredible series. He hit 435 with four doubles, a home run, and eight RBIs, which would have just been insane on its own. But then he also had a 1.86 ERA with 11 strikeouts, in nine plus innings. I jokingly tweeted that the guy was made in the lab because that's the way it looks. So I say all this one to say that the World Baseball Classic was freaking amazing. This is unbelievably good for Major League Baseball itself. Major League Baseball is now going to host games this year in London, Mexico, and Puerto Rico. So it'll be interesting to see if they can turn some of this attention into regular season action, right? So they, if they can get more people interested in the regular season. Other athletes have taken note. Connor McDavid of the NHL, who is the best hockey player on the planet right now, said that he wants the NHL to do something similar. People came back at me on Twitter and said, did he forget about the Olympics? NHL players aren't allowed to play in the Olympics. So other athletes want to replicate this. They know that this is a good way to grow the game. And it didn't benefit anyone more than Shohei Otani, I think. So he's part two of this. One, World Baseball Classic was awesome. They should do this all the time. Next one's in 2026. It'll continue to grow the game. It's good for baseball, good for the global marketing of it, et cetera, et cetera. Number two, Shohei Otani. Otani is going to be a free agent after this year. He agreed to a one-year $30 million deal with the LA Angels this past offseason. But after this year, he's going to be a free agent. So he could get traded during the middle of the season. We'll see what happens. There's a number of teams that people are speculating are obviously interested. You have Steve Cohen in New York with the Mets, who has more money than he knows what to do with it. I mean, the guy's spending $100 million more than the record payroll in Major League Baseball this year. He's paying other teams millions and millions and millions of dollars because of the luxury tax. So he obviously doesn't have a problem spending money. He wants to win. That could be a destination. The Yankees are obviously players, although they may not be able be willing to spend as much money as he wants. Obviously, LA is an option with the Dodgers and the Padres, maybe the Cubs or people like that, right? So he has a bunch of options. But I saw an interesting stat the other day, which was ESPN and some other people have done projections on what he would get for the different parts of his game. And they're saying that as a pitcher, he would get an eight-year, $230 million deal just as a pitcher. So you just only take his pitching numbers, how often he pitches, how well he pitches, et cetera. And he does eight years, $230 million. And then if you separated his hitting, and you just looked at his batting average, his home runs, his slugging percentages, on base percentage, everything that goes along with being a DH, he would get a 10-year deal for $333 million. That's over $560 million. And there was speculation before this by plenty of people within you know, the media, Jeff Passan, Buster Only, all these baseball guys. And they were all saying that he could get a $500 million deal. And some people thought that was crazy. The record is right now 426, I believe, from Mike Trout, his teammate, which was over 12 years. Mookie Betts got 360, 365. Aaron Judge just got 360. Manny Machado and Lindor, I believe, are, are in that range too, maybe 340, 350. So there's a few players that have gotten anywhere between 340 million and 430 million, call it. No one's ever reached 500 million. So that would be a huge monster contract. And I think he's going to get it. And I think he actually might get more than that. Some people are now saying that he may be able to get $600 million. And look, we're talking about astronomical numbers here. He's in his late 20s. You give him a 10-year deal, 12-year deal, that's 
huge, 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 huge money you're committing to this guy. Even if he just plays pitcher for three more years and then ends up becoming a hitter. It's it's an incredible amount of money. We'll see what happens there. But the reason why I think it's going to happen is not only have we not ever seen a player like him, like people always compare him to Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth really only did the two-way thing for a couple of years. Otani's already been doing it for even more years than, than Babe Ruth did, and he's doing it at a really high level. He's an all-star in both, and he's just an incredible player. But outside of that, he's now become the face of baseball because of how strong the Japanese community is and how much they love baseball. So if you look at his social media following, Otani literally didn't have a Instagram when he got to Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball helped him set up the Instagram. And now it looks like he's getting a little more active. But over the first couple of years, he was barely posting at all. And now he's been posting every couple of weeks. But during the World Baseball Classic, he had a little bit less than 2 million followers during the World Baseball Classic. He's almost at five now. So he's over doubled his Instagram following in just the last two weeks alone. And for perspective, there's not a single other active Major League Baseball player that has more than 2 million Instagram followers. I think this says a couple things. One, Otani is the face of baseball. He's the most important player in the game right now from a marketing perspective. He's global. People in America love him. People in Japan love him and so forth. But two, how freaking bad is Major League Baseball been at marketing their players? For Mike Trout to be number one before Otani with 2 million followers, that's atrocious. That, that is bad. If you look at some of the other guys, I mean, how many followers does Ronaldo have? How many followers does LeBron have? Even Tom Brady, Odell Beckham Jr., these guys have five to 10 times more followers. And when you look at it from Major League Baseball's perspective, this is exactly what they need. They have always lacked the ability to dominate 21st century digital platforms like Twitter, like Instagram, like YouTube, even podcasts, newsletters, and so forth. And I think that this tournament has done a lot for that. Again, it's going to be important to see how this all plays out long term, if they're able to get viewership out of this how they're able to monetize it, how they're able to grow the game, and so forth. But Otani, I think, has has certainly taken that torch as baseball's face, despite you know Stephen A. Smith saying that he isn't able to do it because he needs a translator. We all knew at the, at the time that was said that that was, that was a load of crap and it wasn't true. And it's proven that. Otani now gets $20 million in endorsement money. I don't think anyone else has over 5 or $6 million a year. He's by far and away the most impactful player in Major League Baseball. Fans love him. Players love playing with him and so forth. And lastly, before we move on to the next topic, I mean, come on. The Angels, you have the two best players in baseball, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, and you literally can't win anything. I don't even think Otani's been to the playoffs. Yeah, Otani has never been to the playoffs, and they have never even finished above 500 with both players. So it's a disaster what has happened in L.A. Hopefully, they either invest in the team or let him move on somewhere else where he'll have an opportunity to play playoff baseball and meaningful baseball because anyone that watched that game the other night could tell how much this meant to those people, right? Mike Trout was extremely upset afterwards and Otani couldn't have been happier. They were throwing him in the air. He was smiling. He was cheering. He was yelling, all of it. So it was awesome to see as a fan of baseball. I hope there's more to come. And the last thing I would say on it actually is that I bet that there's going to be even more talent at the next one. The thing with this has always been that players, some play, some don't play. Teams don't want them to play because they can get hurt and so forth. But after watching this, there were so many players tweeting about it, liking even my tweets and saying how great the World Baseball Classic was, the energy was, how infectious it was. And we've already seen Mike Trout come into the next one. A bunch of guys have already committed. I hope the U.S. brings back a stronger pitching staff next time. We'll see. 
But my hope is that if the talent level continues to rise, more people will get interested in this because it's it's a true world championship. You're bringing other countries together rather than just US-based countries. And it's great for the game. So we'll see what happens. But before we get to the next topic, let's hear from today's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by SoFi. SoFi is the all-in-one finance app, helping you bank, borrow, invest, and save. SoFi's mission is to help members achieve financial independence and realize their ambition all in one app. It's the single app you need to get your money right. I'm a SoFi member and I love it. SoFi is legit and they comply with the strict regulatory standards of the FDIC so you can be sure that your money is safe. Visit SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano to learn more. That's SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano. All right, let's get back to this episode. All right, the next topic I want to talk about is ESPN layoffs. So this was actually announced a few months ago, I think, maybe one or two months ago. Bob Iger at Disney said, we're going to be having layoffs. He didn't specifically say ESPN, but what Disney did is they split the business into three parts. So Iger's back in charge now. He said, we're going to split the business into three distinct divisions. One was Disney Entertainment, which includes its streaming and media operations. Number two was an ESPN-specific division that includes the TV network and the ESPN Plus streaming service. And then number three was parks, experiences, and products. So ESPN is now siloed and looked at as its own operation and product under Bob Iger since he returned as CEO, I believe it was last November. But with that, he said that Disney is planning on cutting 7,000 employees, laying off 7,000 employees to create $5.5 billion in cost savings. So even though this was said a little while ago, it was reignited this week for some reason. If you Google ESPN layoffs, there's every outlet in the world is writing about it. And it's because Stephen A. Smith on his podcast, as far as I can tell, this is where it came from. On Stephen A. Smith's podcast, No Mercy, he made a comment essentially saying ESPN is going to be making cuts. Heck, I could be cut. I don't think so, but I'm not trying to be cut. You know, They're going to lay a bunch of people off. It sucks. And the reason for this is is pretty simple. ESPN has done this a number of times over the last few years. They cut 300 employees in 2015. They cut 250 employees in 2017. And they laid off another 300 employees in 2020. So they have a history of doing layoffs every couple of years, 2015, 2017, 2020, and now 2023. They trimmed some people, moved the business forward, and obviously reduced a little bit. Everyone that's been paying attention to the economy over the last few weeks and months and year now has realized that this is nothing new, right? These companies added tremendous amounts of jobs during the pandemic, and now they have, they're have they cutting back. Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix, and now ESPN. ESPN is in a unique position because while they're simultaneously doing this, I think the real problem is that the Wall Street analysts have been telling them to build out and signaling to them to build out ESPN Plus for years now. They want streaming subscribers. They want to kill everyone else in the marketplace. They want them to go to the bundle that is Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu. That's the most important bundle in the world. YouTube TV now obviously increased their price. That is a benefit to ESPN because ESPN is part of that bundle. So even if you just go sign up for Disney Plus, there's a decent chance a lot of those subs are converting just because of that. We don't know what the viewership numbers are. No one's selling us that. But the business is interesting because they're still getting $740 million a month or $2.2 billion a quarter from cable. So the way this works is there's 74 million homes in America that pay $10 a month as part of their cable bundle. So ESPN is $10 as part of that cable bundle. 74 million homes, you multiply that, that's $740 million a month, give or take, and out to a quarter, that's $2.2 billion. 
And that's before a single ad is sold. So then they go sell inventory on that and they make even more money. So this $740 million number is down because now they only have 74 million households versus 100 million homes a decade ago in 2011. So that business has declined a little bit, but it obviously still generates a tremendous amount of cash for the network. And now they have ESPN Plus, which has about 25 million subscribers at $10 a month or $20 a year. So that's become a pretty big winner for them too. They're losing money on it currently, but the base is there and they're hoping that as churn starts to drop and the business continues to trim some fat, they'll be able to turn it profitable long term. The other unique situation here though is that ESPN has been throwing money around at talent. Troy Aikman got an $18 million per year deal to be an analyst for Monday Night Football. Joe Buck came with them, $15 million a year. Stephen A. Smith makes $12 million a year. So this is a huge amount of money being thrown out at ESPN. I don't think that the top people have to worry, like Troy Aikman's not going anywhere, Joe Buck's not going anywhere, and Stephen A. Smith is not going anywhere. The people that usually have to worry in these situations are people that are not part of the efficiency of an organization. So people that are not in these buckets or critical parts of the organization, their jobs are not dependent to the success of these shows and the network. The other people that are up for grabs here and may find themselves in a difficult position are people that make a lot of money, but are kind of considered that middle tier, right? It's analysts on SportsCenter, anchors on SportsCenter, or people that call games that may be making a few hundred thousand dollars a year that may be in difficult positions. Andrew Marchand was talking about this on his podcast either earlier today or, or, or yesterday, and he mentioned something similar of like, I think his number was $600,000. If you're making around that number and you're not reporting to the big time executives, and you're not providing a ton of value, like your job's probably gone. And look, this is something that's an unfortunate part of the situation in sports. These companies are constantly trying to become profitable and make more money for the businesses that own them. And this is just the unfortunate reality that ESPN is up against, which is trying to become more profitable. There's been investor calls to spin off the business. They've said no, no, no. Now they want to show that they can continue to pay billions and billions and billions of dollars a year for these rights and spin it off as a profit through cable subs, through streaming subs, through products, through advertising, et cetera. So we'll see what happens. I don't think there's anything going to be happening, call it within the next couple of weeks, but over the next month or two, before the next earnings call, we'll probably hear some more noise about how they're going to be able to cut $5.5 billion in cost. I think $3 billion of it was from content. So you know, a couple, we'll call it $1 to $2 billion once you skirt everything else out that's actually salaries and, and other parts of the business that are, I don't want to say easily expendable, but but more easily expendable than others. So look, 7,000 jobs is a lot of people that equates to about 3% of Disney's workforce. But I think ESPN has 8,000 employees globally. So if they cut 200, 500 again, it's still a pretty considerable portion of the business, especially here in North America, where I think the majority of those employees probably sit. So keep an eye out for that. ESPN is investing a lot of money in making sure that their streaming packages work. Investors want to see, as a publicly traded company under Disney, that they are able to turn a profit within the next few years. But keep an eye out. I'll update you guys as more happens. But for now, 7,000 jobs, undisclosed portion of that will be from ESPN. Some changes are coming. I wish everyone at ESPN the best of luck. It's obviously an unfortunate situation, but people will get through it. All right. Right before we get to the XFL, I want to talk about our second sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Golden. Did you know that a Joe Montana jersey recently sold for over $1 million on Golden Auctions? Golden is the leading and most trusted destination for some of the most significant pieces of sports and pop culture collectibles. And better yet, it's not just for high ticket items. Golden's marketplace is open 24 seven. 
and weekly auctions featuring authenticated and graded collectibles, all just starting at $5. That means collectors of all kinds can enjoy the same quality, convenience, and seamless user experience that Golden is known for at any price point. And here's the best part. Golden is offering no marketplace fees for items sold up to $10,000. So vault and list your items on Golden's marketplace now to enjoy this limited time offer. I'm a big fan of the platform, and I think you will be too. Head over to golden.com to get started. That's golden, G-O-L-D-I-N.com. All right, let's talk XFL. So XFL, I think most people probably have an understanding of somewhat of the background, but I'll give you a little bit of a TLDR to make sure. So the XFL was started by Vince McMahon in 2001. It is an alternative to the NFL. It's a spring football league. Everyone knows. So it was shut down after 2001. It got off to a hot start, faced a bunch of issues, ended up shutting down. Vince McMahon brought it back, the CEO of WWE, brought it back in 2020. He reportedly invested $200 million. So if you go online, you can find he sold a bunch of WWE stock. He committed to, to selling even more. Yeah, yeah, I think he committed to selling $500 million. He actually sold $250 million, which is about 4% of the business. And he invested $200 million of it into the XFL, which went kaputs, done, burned it, done. COVID came along. He had a seven-figure monthly burn rate. That means the business was burning seven figures a month on expenses, losing money. So they shut it down. The big mistake that Vince McMahon made, and I call it a mistake because the viewership for the XFL's return in 2020 was actually pretty damn good. They were averaging 1.5 million to 3 million viewers through the first five weeks, anywhere between 1.5 and 3 million viewers, which again, it's not the NFL. The NFL is getting 15 million viewers a game. I don't know. And it's obviously less than that, but it's better than college basketball. It's better than baseball. It's better than a lot of other things that are on networks like that. So networks would have paid a pretty penny for that because it's valuable inventory. You got a lot of eyeballs. The advertising opportunities are there and so forth. So the mistake he made was that he did it on a short-term TV deal. So he signed a TV deal. I don't know if it was only one year or maybe two years, but all it did was cover production costs, which was about 400000 per game. So he told the networks, hey, pay us 400000 per game, cover the production cost of it. We'll bet on ourselves that the ratings are going to be there. And then we'll go out and we'll sell it for a multiple of what you guys are offering us right now. And it was smart because the ratings were there. Getting 3 million viewers, like I just said, is great. But the problem was COVID came. COVID came and it shut everything down. Disney, ESPN, none of these people knew how long COVID was going to be here when they were going to be able to do football again. So Vince McMahon panicked. He supposedly went back to all these networks and tried to strike a deal. No one wanted to do a deal because, again, they didn't know what was going to be happening. He was burning seven figures a month, had to shut it down. The assets of the XFL then went to bankruptcy court. And The Rock, yeah, Dwayne Johnson, former University of Miami football player, WWE star, now the world's most famous and highest paid actor, bought the assets with his business partner and former wife, Danny Garcia, out of bankruptcy court with Redbird Capital. So Redbird is, is a famous sports investor. Those three groups teamed up together and bought the assets out of bankruptcy court for $15 million. And what this set up was obviously the return of the XFL, but it meant that when you combine the NFL, the XFL, and the USFL, in 2023, there's now 46 of the 52 weekends have, we'll call it in quotes, pro football. 
that's interesting for a number of reasons. One, because the XFL was doing good numbers. Now they reportedly got it for a relatively cheap number. They haven't said what they've invested into the business. So $15 million for the assets, the trademarks, everything like that. But outside of that, they are spending millions and millions of dollars to relaunch this league, of course. So they haven't disclosed that. But they did sign a TV deal. So they did the opposite of what McMahon did. They signed a five-year deal, a long-term deal with Disney and ESPN. So again, this is interesting because they signed a five-year deal. This is not a one-year deal. It's not a two-year deal. It's not, hey, prove the ratings deal. It's a five-year deal. And they didn't disclose the number. But if you think about what the product costs to put on and what you need the ROI to be over five years, right? It needs to be something where you're getting a return on your investment over those five years. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Why would you sign a five-year deal if you're going to lose money every single year? You're not willing to put that money in just to test run it for five years. It's got to be a number that you're comfortable with and so forth. So my guess is, and I've seen this confirmed by other people within the industry, I think they got somewhere between 20 to $30 million a year in TV rights from, from Disney and ESPN. And that number lines up with what I think it's worth, again, if you're getting a couple million viewers per game. So the reason why this is important, though, is because, one, it's a decent amount of money, and it probably makes them either not lose a lot of money or, or break even. But now all 43 XFL games are across networks like ABC, ESPN, and FX. That's putting you in millions of households. So again, the content can be amazing, but at the end of the day, if you don't have distribution, if the media rights don't work and the broadcasting rights are not in your favor, you could have the best league in the world and it doesn't matter. So that's been a really important piece for the XFL. I think they did a great job by signing that. But the flip side of this is the ratings aren't there. Oh my, 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 my. It has been a bloodbath for the XFL over the last few weeks. So the first week was great. I was tweeting about it. Everyone was tweeting about it. It was fantastic. 1.3 million viewers average for the first week of the XFL. They had games on ABC, ESPN, FX, ESPN Deportes, ESPN Plus, and so forth. They averaged 1.3 million viewers. Great. It's not the 3 million that the first FXL did, but that was the return of the XFL after 20 years. Understandable that that would be a little bit higher. 1.3 is a very solid number. Week two, though, numbers dropped. 659,000. So we went from 1.3 million to 659,000. Again, not amazing, not terrible though, decent. Week three, numbers dropped again, 572,000 average viewers across week three. So now we went from 1.3 million to 659,000 to 572. What do you know about week four? Take a guess. Numbers dropped again, 507,000 in week four. So 1.3 million, 659,000. 572,000, all the way down to 507,000 average viewers across week four. But what do you know again? Week five. Now, I don't want to give the XFL too hard of a time. Hardworking people, they know what they're doing. They're trying. They're putting on something that's really difficult. They're going up against a behemoth. They signed a, a technology sharing agreement. You know, basically, we're going to test some things with the NFL. But ultimately, it's really tough to go against someone that big. But at the end of the day, numbers aren't there. Week five, last week, XFL viewership, 267,000 viewers for week five. So we started the year at 1.3 million viewers. Week five, though, 267,000 viewers. So that's obviously drastically low. It's, it's just not good at all. The highest game last week only had 320,000 viewers. So again, not good at all. And... What it comes down to is a couple of things. March Madness is obviously in full swing and the World Baseball Classic is in full swing. So when you're competing with those two for, for timeshare on TV, 
the XFL is going to fall behind. I'm sorry. That's just the way it goes. The important thing now will be seeing if they can improve on this come next week. So the XFL is going to have some games coming up on ABC, which is the premium network for them, right? They want to be on ABC and ESPN as much as possible because those channels just draw more eyeballs than ESPN2 and FX and Deportes and ESPN+. Plus. Those channels, ABC and ESPN, are what they want. So they have a bunch of games coming up on there. But it's just a difficult time of year. You obviously can't do it during the fall because you'll compete with the NFL itself. But then outside of that, we have March Madness. We have the World Baseball Classic this year. We have the Masters coming up after this. MLB season is now starting, though. So there's a few different things that are kind of taking away that I share from the consumer. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be a long-term play here, right? They have five years, so they're not pulling the plug on this immediately. Redbird Capital has deep pockets they can invest millions and millions and millions of dollars into this if it's necessary. Obviously, you want some upside and the ability to do this, but they have the capital and the cash ready to cover all operational costs that are necessary to make this business profitable. So I think personally that they are going to try as hard as they possibly can or die trying. I literally think that they're going to do this until they are proven 1000% wrong. So it's to be determined if, if spring football in America can catch on. There just hasn't been enough of an appetite over it, for it over the last few years. You could also argue that the product hasn't been there. And, and as soon as the product was decent, that COVID happened and so forth. So I'm rooting for them. I really am. I think that it's always good when people want to give others opportunities. And that's what the XFL does. It gives players that are outside of the NFL or players that want to make it to the NFL an opportunity to showcase their skills. And if the consumers want it, it should be there. If they don't want it, it's going to go away. That's just how business works. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Outside of that, thank all of you for listening. I hope you guys have an amazing, amazing weekend. I'll be traveling this weekend for a wedding. So we'll talk when I get back here on Monday in Miami. But remember, DM me on Twitter so I have some questions and we'll answer them over the next podcast. Just give me what your question is. It could be small, big, large, whatever, and give me your name. And next podcast, I will shout you out and try to answer a few of your questions. So thanks again for listening, guys. Have a great weekend. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.